Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Again, it's the second hour of Mornings with Carmen on this 26th of July, 2021. It's the last week of July. I don't know if keeping track of such things. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? Paul, have you planted anything this summer? Actually, we did. Yeah, yeah. I did a lot of things. Got some tomatoes, some Brussels sprouts, which the Mm. uh, aphids are just going to town on. I Mm. tell you. And some broccoli. Need some chickens. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I can't. I know, but then they peck the tomatoes. It's a mess. You can't. Yeah, I know. yeah and we like win. our tomatoes, so. Yeah. yeah. So um, we have a bumper crop of tomatoes this year. Uh, our cucumbers, every time we plant them, for whatever reason, they're not coming up. So I suspect we have one of those weird beetle problems just specifically related to cucumbers. Um, but uh, we have too much squash. We have one bush and we have too much squash. So there you go. That's how my gardening goes this summer. I want to spend one minute talking about gardening, grace, gratitude, and God. There you go. Four G's for this Monday morning, gardening, grace, gratitude, and God. Here are the two questions that I am uh, desiring to provoke among us this week. Where do you see God working in and through some other person this summer? So I want you to think of someone in your life uh, could be a member of your family, could be a coworker, someone you see casually in the community, somebody at church. Where do you see God working in and through that individual this summer? Uh, and I want you then to, your task this week is to go and tell them, tell them that you see an abundance of love in them, and then tell them, you know, when when you saw that, what evidence you're bringing forward um, of that of that claim. Where do you see an abundance of joy? You're going to recognize here, I'm going through the Galatians list of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. So I want you to think about where you have seen God working in and through the life of another person, and then I want you to go tell them. Tell them, I saw God grant you an unusual harvest of peace and patience as you dealt with your screaming child in the aisle of the target. I mean, whatever. I saw God's goodness flow through you when you assisted this other individual. Like, I caught you doing good. That's what this is about. So this is uh, an encouragement to recognize where you see God working in and through the life of another person and identify the harvest of righteousness in their life. So that's the gardening grace, gratitude, and God uh, assignment for today. Where have you seen God working in and through the life of another person? And then go tell them. I recognize the Spirit's gentleness when you, and then tell them the story. The self-control that you demonstrated when XYZ uh, was evidence of God's presence and power at work within and through you. And then I want you to stand in front of the mirror and and sort of ask the self-reflective spiritual fruit inspection question. What spiritual fruit do I see God producing in greater measure in my own life this summer? Where's the harvest of righteousness in my own life? 
when and where and toward whom did I demonstrate great or greater love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? Go ahead and do a little personal fruit inspection, but be sure you also, um, you know, do a positive spiritual fruit inspection of others and recognize and point out where you see the harvest of righteousness in your own family, in your community, in your place of work. Gardening, grace, gratitude, and God. Mindy Bells is up next from World Magazine. We are going to survey the headlines from around the world. We'll be right back. From World Magazine, you can find what we're talking about today at WNG.org. Mindy, greetings. Happy summer. Hi, Carmen. Happy summer to you. And my tomatoes are doing great as well. Okay, so I do have one confession. We have three cows who are currently um, on the lamb. And they, uh, we know where they are. They're in 70 acres of corn that is planted down the street from us. And, um, and so I'm concerned that I, I've not only lost my three cows and therefore our wonderful grass-fed beef, but it's possible that I'm going to have to, like, you know, make, make, make the farmer whole. So anyway, that's my current <laughs> dilemma this morning in terms of the farm report in Middle Tennessee. Um, I know. Not dealing it with what the like Cuban— a great summer. Yeah, exactly. Not dealing with what the Cuban people are dealing with today. Tell, bring us up to speed on the protests in Cuba. Yeah, precisely. The um, people in Cuba took to the streets really about, um, we're going on three weeks uh, and three weeks ago. And I can't emphasize enough how unprecedented this is. Everyone we've talked to, people inside Cuba, people who travel to Cuba and support churches there, they all say, We've never seen anything like this in in 60 years of of communist rule in Cuba. And I think one of the key points that it underscores is how um, Cubans no longer believe their hardship is the result of, of U.S. economic sanctions, the embargo, that it's America's fault. They are fully putting the blame on the regime there. And, um, and, and they haven't let up, even though there has been a violent crackdown. Many of the leaders have been arrested. Uh, hundreds of people were told ha- have disappeared. And so it's, it's remarkable how they are rising up. Their, their battle cry, I think, underscores all of this. You know, Fidel Castro had something of a, of a war cry that was always um, in evidence at public speeches, public demonstrations that were organized by the regime. And it was Patria Omert, or, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Homeland or Death. And the, the battle cry of the protesters is Patria y Vida, but, uh, which Homeland and Life. And that's that's what's at stake here for them. Hmm. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking um, and it's convicting. Uh, I think that the the church and the and Christians around the world, like this is an opportunity for us to stand up with brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's also, you know, really, really challenging to to figure out how to appropriately engage. Yeah, and I think it's it's notable that Christians are 
you know, have to be so careful inside Cuba. The Baptist Convention of Cuba, though, actually issued a statement, and they and they demanded that the authorities quote listen to the legitimate cry of the people, end quote. And so that also tells you something that they basically are putting themselves on the line with the protesters. That's good. All right. Um, how about let's uh, pivot toward Myanmar, like halfway around the world. What's happening there? Yeah, I think in everything place that we look at, <clears throat> what is what is underlying sort of it feels like, you know, a world in chaos that you and I keep returning to is is these outbreaks of COVID-19 that are really hard for us in America to appreciate how the world is is dealing with that. And Southeast Asia is in the midst of an incredible surge of COVID-19 right now. And that is adding to the this destabilized situation there. You know, you had a February coup in Myanmar where we had this democracy, kind of a country in transition toward more democracy, and the country was retaken by the military. And again, protests that have not stopped, a really incredibly resilient protest movement that has been ruthlessly cracked down upon by the, the military, the junta, that's now in charge of Myanmar. But what we're learning about what they're doing is just they are they are actually using COVID. They're they're um, denying mm. medicine, denying basic supplies to, for instance, some of the the key opposition leaders who have been jailed. A number of them have died. We're we're learning, and so again, just an unspeakable situation where um, I don't think we even know how many people have been killed. Uh, and and we just continue to see the way the government is ruthlessly attacking its own people. Mm. All right, it's um it's heartbreaking. Uh, Mindy Bell's and I are going to continue our survey of what's happening around the world. Remember, this is an encouragement for you and I to be praying the news in places and spaces where God is equally concerned about every human life and each and every one of um, these nations around the world, these communities, these precious people. Um, who are struggling in ways that are just really hard for us to imagine. Uh, so Mindy and I will be right back. We're going to pivot toward a conversation about what's happening in Ethiopia. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We need a strong God. Yeah. We need the real God. The God with the resurrection power from the grave. All right, we're going to pray the globe with Mindy Bells this morning. We're going to turn our attention to Ethiopia. You can find the stories we were discussing today at uh, World News Group, WNG.org. What's happening in Ethiopia, Mindy? We've talked before about this conflict in the Tigray region, and I want to emphasize that the Tigray region is home to some of the oldest people groups in Ethiopia and Africa, and also home to a, a, a pretty substantial Christian population. It's right up there on the border with Eritrea, mm. which is a majority Muslim country, and Early on when this uh, conflict began with, with Tigrayan forces and the Ethiopian government, Ethiopia called in the Eritrean uh, some militias, essentially, to uh, tamp down the violence. And, and as a re result, we saw massacres and incredible bloodletting there. We've talked about some of the church massacres, you know, as many as 800 people killed. And we continue to get reports of this kind of thing happening. So it has forced a number of people to flee 
forced uh, an ongoing crisis situation that now aid groups say is is bordering on famine. And um, and it's tragic because this is a situation that didn't exist six, nine months ago. Um, and and so it, it's happened very rapidly. What we're seeing now is, first of all, the Ethiopian government, um, which has been under a lot of international condemnation for using the Eritrean forces, is now kind of encouraging other militias into this area. And that's making the situation even worse. As I see this unfolding, I, I'm thinking Syria, you know, this just can't go anywhere mm -hmm. good. Um, but the second thing that's happening is that the, they are using aid. Uh, aid has kind of been weaponized, has become a, a, a weapon of war. And so instead of allowing aid in in a neutral sort of way to help these people to avoid a famine, which could spread into all kinds of, you know, the countries bordering Sudan, all kinds of fragile areas that are right there, um, instead of allowing aid groups to to work in an unfettered way. We keep hearing reports that one side or the other is blocking them from accessing key areas. And so that continues to be a real problem. You know, I want to say, Carmen, in all the stories that we're talking about today, what I'm seeing in this sort of COVID world that we're living in right now and all these um, conflicts kind of becoming so much worse for civilian populations is the real importance of the international aid groups, the non-governmental organizations, groups like Samaritan's Purse that are very uh, active and have been trying to get a corridor open into the Tigray region. In Myanmar, which we just talked about, a, a really fine Christian group called Free Burma Rangers. I think you've covered some of their work mm -hmm. before. And they are just supporting these populations that have been fleeing the government onslaught in Myanmar. Everywhere I look, I see a group of Syrian doctors working in Syria. And so I think it's it's really important for us to be noticing that. Those are groups that we can support as we feel led to. That's like a concrete thing we can do as we're trying to figure out how to how to help these people. Yeah, I see the, the BBC is reporting, um, you know, the, the rise uh, in terms of concern in Ethiopia's Tigray region. And again, it is mostly about um, access to food and water. Like their people are going to um, begin starving to death. And it's a, it, what they're describing it as this, you know, this fast developing humanitarian crisis. And you're right uh, in identifying Samaritan's Purse and other non-governmental organizations as NGOs as really the only ones present on the forefront of this crisis in terms of um, seeking to alleviate this developing human tragedy. Um, you mentioned Syria. Do you have an update there for us? Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the really just disheartening things that has happened, uh, well, I'll say, I'll say too, that, that what I'm hearing from World Vision, a couple of other groups. There's a Syrian American Medical Society that has really been the, the kind of the foundational support for a number of hospitals in some of the conflict areas in Syria. Um, two things. Vaccines that were supposed to get into Syria are not arriving. There were some that were supposed to arrive in June that they still haven't seen. They don't know what's happened to them. 
uh, COVID-19 is soaring in conditions like we've been describing elsewhere, where other aid isn't getting in, where people are going without water and without basic food supplies. And so it just simply means that the pandemic is having a much harsher effect on them when it hits. At the same time, there have been a number of attacks on hospitals, and, and this continues to be this pattern. No one has taken responsibility for this latest attack that happened, and it was and it destroyed just a major hospital in northwest Syria. Um, but all the indicators are that it was somehow tied to the regime, either the Syrian forces or Russian forces, either uh, you know by accident, which is hard to believe, or on purpose, targeted this hospital, took out a maternity ward that serves 350 mothers with having children in, uh, or a labor and delivery board, I should say, a month, 350. And um, those kinds of things just are devastating to the civilians. And what we continue to see um, is a regime that is willing to attack its own citizens in order to clear out its enemies. And um, and that is what has been so devastating about Syria. We're at the 10-year mark, 10 mark of the war there, half a million people at least killed, and 12 million people who still have been forced from their homes. they either out of the country or they are displaced somewhere within the country. And I think what we lose sight of is how that situation destabilizes the region reaches across the Mediterranean to Europe, just continues to have fallout effects really around the world. Well, and one of those fallout effects that I'm becoming increasingly aware of, Mindy, is um, you know the orphan crisis that we are all uh, now on the verge of facing. Uh, I mean, the, the current estimate is 1.1 million children around the world who have experienced the death of a primary caregiver as a direct result of the coronavirus um, pandemic. Uh, that's that's from the Lancet, the medical journal published just this week. Um, but they're but what they're talking about is that number could double like quickly and then redouble quickly. Like we're going to be talking about little kids who literally have no one to care for them. Um, and, you know, if the number is now at one point one million, what will the number be at after the this you know next wave of the pandemic moves yeah. across uh, the globe? Yeah, and I think that when we when we look back to a place like Syria, which has been undergoing this kind of calamity for years upon years, you know, half of the refugees, uh, six plus million people from Syria, are under the age of eighteen. That is a whole generation that is traumatized, that is compromised in terms of health because of all the things that we're talking about. And that, you know, just has a potential, not only the sheer tragedy of it, but what will what will those children turn to as they grow up? And, and so there's there's a tremendous need for just more of the kind of compassion that I think um, Christian organizations have traditionally been so good at doing. And and we just can't look away from how great that need is going to be. And I agree with you. I think that that number, that 1.1 million is is a low number. We're going to see that number really go up as we learn more about, for instance, what's happened in India, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think the numbers in India are going to be staggering uh, at the at the end of this conversation. All right, Mindy, um, we're going to leave it right there. That's Mindy Bells from World Magazine. We love catching up with you. We pray for your work. Thank you for your diligence in it. Um, We appreciate you joining us today. Thanks, Carmen. 
Absolutely. We're going to take a break for Breakpoint. All right. Forgiveness. You and I have experienced it as Christians. We rely on Jesus for just this magnificent gift. But forgiveness is quite a scandal. And so we're going to talk about the scandal of forgiveness. It's also the title of Philip Yancey's new book. So my conversation with him up next. This is Max Licato. In the famous lace shops of Brussels, Belgium, certain rooms are dedicated to the spinning of the finest lace with the most delicate of patterns. These rooms are completely dark, except for a shaft of natural light from a solitary window. Only one spinner sits in the room. The light falls on the pattern while the worker remains in the dark. Has God permitted a time of darkness in your world? You look, but you cannot see him. You see only the fabric of circumstances woven and interlaced. You might question the purpose behind this thread or that, but be assured, God has a pattern. He has a plan. The Bible in Romans 8.28 says, In all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. He is not finished, but when He is, the lace will be beautiful. This is Max Locato. Well, I'm thrilled to welcome back Philip Yancey. He joins us today to talk about his newest book, The Scandal of Forgiveness, Grace Put to the Test. Philip, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. Great to be with you again, Carmen. Well, it's wonderful to have you. Um, So as a person who was a was a great fan um, of What's So Amazing About Grace, you can imagine that um, I really enjoyed The Scandal of Forgiveness. You know, we took everything related to forgiveness in that book. I added anything else I had learned over the years. And I can't think of a better topic for this time. We're in a divided country. People don't know how to get along with those who see the world differently than they do. And I think it's time for a good lesson on forgiveness and what we can learn from Jesus and the Bible. So the book, um, which for those of you who are listening, it's very brief, but it is uh, it is a rich resource. And every single chapter um, has a story in it that if you're like me, is a story that is very close to home um, or close to a home near yours. So, um, Philip, why don't you just lead off by telling people um, about Mark, because that opening story and then um, and then this observation, only the forgiving party, the wronged one, has the ability to dismantle the wall. Like, I think once you get to that point in the conversation, I began to understand where we were going. So can you just tell us a little bit about Mark? Sure. Mark is a friend of mine. He had an argument with his wife. I forget what it was about, something about spending too much money on rehab at their house or something like that. And he it just got out of control. And he was shouting at her and she grabbed the phone and dialed 911. He quickly grabbed the phone from her, unplugged it from the wall. But you may know that once you dial 911, the record goes in and the law enforcement are required to show up at the house and see what's going on in case there's emergency. 
so they showed up. He tried to explain his way out, but they actually hauled him out in the middle of the night wearing nothing but his boxer shorts and took him to jail. And uh, of course, he had to patch things up with his wife, but he also had to attend anger management. All you had to do was fill out a form apologizing. That was the first step. He was the only person in the class full of people who had been in similar situations. He was the only one who was willing to write that apology. And I, I took that because forgiveness is, is like a chain that binds two people together. Both the forgiving party and the forgiven party have some power. He can't receive forgiveness until he apologizes and asks for it. And then on the other hand, his wife won't, he'll never receive the forgiveness unless his wife grants it. So there's this chain that ties two people together and both have a way, a part to play in dismantling that chain. Yeah, I thought that um, that observation and then the conversation as this chapter unfolds, um, and then you talk in this chapter about, you know, whether or not my forgiving someone else is dependent upon their repenting and asking for it. Um, clearly not the way of Jesus. And that is really sort of the radical um, point of this opening uh, chapter. Right. One of the most profound and disturbing things that Jesus said, frankly, is is when he turned to his disciples and said, anybody can love your friends, your community, your family, but I'm telling you, love your enemies. Uh, pray for those who persecute you. And I'm sure the disciples and the listening people were shocked in his day. Enemies, you're supposed to hate them. You're supposed to kill them. You're supposed to oppose them. How can you love your enemies? Why would you do such a crazy thing as that? Why, why would you give a command like that? And Jesus said, because that's the situation you're in. Uh, you're, the only way that people are going to know what God is like, my father forgives the enemies. My father causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous alike and the rain to fall. And the only way people will understand what God is like is if you demonstrate that. If you act like God when you're around people who offend you, people who have hurt you, people who have wounded you, if you can forgive them, it, it's this stunning thing where you stand back and say, how can that be? Why? Why? How could a person come to the point of forgiving someone when I have wronged them? And in, in that very act, we get a little glimpse of what God is like. I'd never heard um, this quote from N.T. Wright that you offer here, and I will tell you I am intrigued by it. So uh, so here's the quote. Um, and again, I'm reading from Philip Yancey's new book, The Scandal of Forgiveness, Grace Put to the Test. Uh, God will not only release the world from its burden of guilt, but will also, so to speak, release himself from the burden of always having to be angry with a world gone wrong. Philip, I got to tell you, that um, the, the forgiveness that's brought about by the reconciling work of Jesus, I've never thought about it in this way. Hmm. But if you read the Old Testament, you keep running into the wrath of God. It's kind of an old-fashioned word we don't use much these days, but the, the anger of God, which is a, an expression of power against those that, oppo that oppose God's will. It, it's not like a temper tantrum. It's a, it's a 
force of power against injustice, against evil, against things that aren't the way God meant them to be. And then when you get to the New Testament, you don't see much about the wrath of God. In fact, it turns into the love of God. God found a way in Jesus by taking on the pain in Jesus. God found a way to get over that wrath, to release the anger that was justified, that God had a right to feel, and yet he took it out on himself, in a sense, his own son. And in doing so, he freed up God's love that could flow to everyone, sinner and righteous person alike. And that's the message of the New Testament. That's the, the good news message that Jesus went out of his way to proclaim. You look at the people Jesus hung around. It wasn't the, the holy people. It wasn't the Pharisees. They were the most righteous people of his day. In fact, he was pretty stern to them. It was the sinners. It was the prostitutes, the tax collectors. He was called a, a, a friend of prostitutes and tax collectors, a friend of sinners. And Jesus chose to be with them because, you know, frankly, every religion believes that God loves good people. The radical message of the gospel is that God loves bad people. <laughs> God loves sinners. doesn't want them to stay that way. He wants to remake them into what God originally intended. But that's the radical message that we need to get across to the rest of the world. I'm talking with Philip Yancey. We're discussing his brand new book, The Scandal of Forgiveness. And yes, we have copies to give away today. Go ahead and text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. All right, continuing our conversation today with Philip Yancey, we're talking about his book, The Scandal of Forgiveness, Grace Put to the Test. We do have copies to give away. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484 to enter the drawing. So, um, Philip, after you make the case in the book for uh, this very unnatural act and you talk about why to forgive and you even address this question of getting evil, you you offer the arsenal of grace. And then I really want to focus in um, on chapter nine, the graceful, the full of grace, the graceful Christian, um, because my guess is that Simone Vey is not someone that all of our listeners are aware of. And I love the way you have introduced her. Simone Vey was a brilliant Jewish woman in France during World War II. And uh, she fought for the resistance. She became a a Christian. She never actually took communion, uh, but she she became a follower of Jesus. That's very clear in her writings. One of the books that perfect that affected me most profoundly was a book called Gravity and Grace. And she says, and I'm simplifying her here because she's a philosopher. She says, the gravity is a description of how the world runs. It runs by rules. And you look around us, uh, you, you bomb my country, we bomb you back. You know, uh, nature runs by gravity. Big animals eat little animals. Everything is, is power wins. And then comes this unnatural thing called grace, where you don't get what you deserve. In fact, you get the opposite of what you deserve. And that contrast really spoke to me because we live in a competitive society and, and we judge each other by 
how well we do, by what kind of school we go to, by what kind of car we drive, by what kind of salary we make. That's what we do. We rank people. And Jesus comes on the scene and he kind of turns that upside down. So he goes to the to people with leprosy. He goes to the homeless. He goes to the the sinners. And these are the people that he makes the heroes of his parables in many ways. You know, it wasn't the, it's not the story of the obedient son that Jesus tells. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's not the story of the good Jewish rabbi. It's the story of the good Samaritan, the heretic. And, and that kind of hits you in the face because we're so ingrained by judging by the standards of culture around us. And Jesus comes and says, God doesn't judge by that. The things that you spend your life trying to compete and prove how good you are, how impressive you are, those mean nothing to God. What means something to God is when you come and say, I can't do it on my own, I need your help. It's kind of like when you go to uh, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and you start out by saying, I'm an alcoholic, <laughs> I need help. I, I need you people around me. I've been, I've been with friends and I, I wish we in the church felt free to be that honest so that we would show up in church not to prove how holy we are, but to prove how needy we are, needy both of God and of the community around us. I I really appreciated the um, the extended quote from Simone Weil's work and this question, this very provocative question of what does a graceful, again spelled like as full of grace, so what does a graceful Christian look like? And then she says, let's rephrase that question: um, How does a graceful Christian look. And she's talking about this issue of perspective, the the lens or the eyes or the uh, lenses through which we are looking at ourselves and the world around us um, through the grace of God. That really does fundamentally change everything, not just the way that I see myself, but the way that I see my neighbor, the way that I see uh, the fallenness of creation. I mean, literally everything. It, it does. When you understand yourself as a forgiven person, forgiven by God, then you start seeing the world through those eyes. And when you see somebody who's maybe offensive to you, morally offensive or immoral, uh, I tell the story of interviewing Henry Nowen, who's an author I'm sure you know, Carmen. And Henry Nowen went out early in the AIDS epidemic and and was just kind of ministering to these young men. They were mostly young men in San Francisco. And he came back and and this was just days before I interviewed him and it was still fresh in his mind. He said, Philip, I went up and down the ward and these men were pitiful, some of them just days from death. And, and I saw that they were dying, literally dying in search for love. And I would ask them, did you find it? Did you find it? And most of them would say, no, I never did. I'm still thirsty. And he said, I found a new way to pray when I find somebody who's offensive to me, who does behavior that offends me, instead of saying, I, I pray God for that immoral person that they would see the light. I, I pray for that thirsty person that they could find a taste of the living water that I have found. What role can I play in introducing them to that living water? That's, the, that's how a grace-filled person looks at the world. You have a different lens. It's a, it's a grace lens, healed by grace. So I'll make this observation, um, Philip, about uh, the sources at the back of the book, um, which I recognized as I was reading. And then I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go and verify that I think I'm right. 
um, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, clearly uh, source material for you, but also a lot of people who wrote um, some years ago now, I would say, um, people who um, many contemporary readers may may have heard of, um, but in all likelihood have not read. Um, talk with us about the value of reading um, reading old stuff. Yes, I was deeply influenced early on by C.S. Lewis, as, as many Christians are, and Lewis was a champion of great literature. In fact, he went back a lot farther than I do. He went back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, and I don't do that, but the people who formed me, and I'm over 70 years old now, but the people who formed me are people like Henry Nouwen and uh, C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton before him and uh, Paul Tournier. And one of the things that I can do because I'm a full-time writer is keep those people alive. They're, they're rich and profound. And as life gets faster and faster and we see sound bites and little quotes instead of reading whole books, what am I contributions, I think, as a writer is just to keep alive the beauty and the insight of those folks who kept informing me early in my Christian life. And um, we, we dare not scorn the insights and the richness of the past. We need to plumb them. They're, we're not the first people who have answered that question. In fact, in this, in this pandemic, Carmen, I went back to a great work by John Donne, who was the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral back in 1623. They were having a pandemic. It was worse than ours. It was the Black Plague, the bubonic plague. And he wrote this beautiful book of wrestling with God. And I, as I read that, I thought, man, these are the same questions that we're going through now. People who are losing their jobs and fighting illness and losing loved ones. Why God is this? Why are you trying to tell us something? Why are we suffering? Those questions don't go away, and we need to plumb and keep alive the masters who have much to teach us centuries later. Philip, um, as always, thank you so much for what you are writing. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for the way that you um, tell stories. Uh, Chapter two is worth the price of the book for sure. Um, Philip Yancey, author of The Scandal of Forgiveness. We do have copies to give away. If you'd like to enter that drawing, just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Philip, as always, thank you so very much. It was a privilege, Carmen. Thank you. Likewise. Likewise. We'll be right back. open to all counsel and wisdom that anyone has on how to round up our cows. <clears throat> I know this might not sound like an urgent crisis to you, but we have three cows, and as I mentioned, they are, they're not lost, technically. We found them. We know where they are, but they are in 70 acres of corn that's like 10 feet tall. And so getting them out of that cornfield and back home to our pasture, um, which is, I don't know, it's a, it's a good half a mile away. I mean, they have taken quite a little vacation from home. Um, so if anybody has any thoughts on that, how to find cowboys who know how to 
wrangle such things. You see, this is going to be the concern that is going to probably be filling my day. What's the concern filling your day? Let us present our concerns before the Lord, and then let us ask for the counsel of one another in getting the help that we need um, to overcome whatever the particular challenges of this day will be. Your challenges today are probably not going to be the same as mine, um, but my I have no doubt you have challenges. So I'll be praying for you. You'll be praying for me. Let's be bringing all of the resources that we have been uh, blessed with from the Father. Bring all of those to bear uh, on the concerns of one another and the concerns of those around us this day. Let's multiply. Let's multiply the harvest of righteousness, the good fruit before the Lord our God. For what purpose? Well, that the kingdom might advance and that others might turn to see the goodness and the grace of our God. All right, friends, if you missed any portion of today's uh, show, you can listen to it later today at the Faith Radio app or at MyFaithRadio.com. Lots of other great resources and opportunities to grow available to you right there as well. MyFaithRadio.com. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.